I'm Luke. My name is John. What are you doing? Saying my name. But that's not how we do it. I say I'm Luke and you say I'm John. Why? What's the difference? It's the format. A show needs a format. Bollocks to the format. We've done 11 episodes of that. I'm sick of being constricted. I want to do something different. Well, can you hurry up and tell me what that is? This is going on a bit long for a cold open. We need to get to the theme tune. We don't need to get to the theme tune. Why does that have to be a theme tune? Let's expand our horizons, Luke. There's no need for a theme tune. They spent their whole lives watching TV. And they're sharing their opinions with you. Cos now they want to have some fun. With a channel that is all brand new. Get comfy and without further ado. They'll choose the shows that you want to view. Welcome to Cracking TV. We're Luke and John, and we're on a mission to create the dream schedule for our own network, Cracking TV. It's your line. I'm not doing the rest of it. You'll have to do it yourself. Each episode, we'll be talking about classic shows from a particular genre, picking one to fill a slot in our schedule. Not this time, we won't. We'll be taking it in turns to be the commissioner and the pitcher. The pitcher will bring a number of shows in the hope of scoring that big commission. I'm not pitching anything. However, the commissioner has already got a first-rate show in mind. The pitcher desperately wants one of his shows to win and avoid the embarrassment of being thrown out of the commissioner's office. Are you done? This week, I'm the commissioner. John, thanks for coming in. What are you going to pitch? I've told you I'm not pitching anything. I'm breaking free of the constraints of this podcast. I've got bigger and better ideas. I'm going to tell the story of British sitcom through the lens of Steptoe and Son tropes. It's going to be an epic audio essay with an original and insightful hypothesis using metamodernist analysis to dissect this most populist of art forms with a rigorous, high-cultural academic eye. Can't we just talk about funny shows, play some clips, and have one show win the commission? It's worked for the last 11 episodes, and sometimes we get literally tens of listeners. No, absolutely not. Okay, what's your thesis? There's this very simple formula which began with Steptoe and Son and has dominated British sitcom for over 60 years. It's a mixture of comedy and pathos. It's deeply claustrophobic and sad, but also hilarious. It's built on two characters, one of whom has lofty aspirations and pretensions, but is continually dragged back to a hated status quo by the other character who's basic and unambitious. So put something in my slot that's uncomfortable, poignant, but also amusing. Would you stop doing the recurring jokes? Okay, but what have you got to say? Right, well, before I tell you about Steptoe and Son, I want to do a bit of prehistory. Okay. So the writers, Ray Galton and Alan Simpson, met in 1948. They were both recuperating from tuberculosis at the Milford Sanatorium when they were both teenagers. Ray Galton had been admitted a year and a half earlier, and when he was put in the hospital, he was not expected to survive for more than a few days. Then he was joined by Alan Simpson, and they went through this really long and painful tuberculosis treatment together on these wards where death was commonplace. Right. But these two teenage lads shared a sense of humour. Yeah. They'd listened to US Forces Radio, which they could pick up from Germany, and there they got to hear American comics like Jack Benny. I don't know if you know Jack Benny. Yeah, a little bit. It's sort of like the humour that we got in Top Cat, right? Yeah, it's that streetwise American-style comedy which was completely unheard of in Britain. You didn't get that in the music hall tradition that we were used to in this country at that time. Yeah, right. So Ray and Alan forged this friendship that would last for more than 60 years. I mean, they've been through so much together, right? And then they had this shared comedy and, yeah, perfect. Exactly. Well, not perfect, they got ill. (laughs) If you imagine them as these two teenage lads having these formative experiences of pain, surrounded by death, but also listening to this really sharp, witted humour, whilst they were trapped together in a single location seemingly forever, you can see how that was formative to the art that they would go on to create, right? Yeah, yeah. So the first work they did together was for the sanatorium's radio station where they did sketches sending up life on the wards. Oh, right. And it is my assertion that they would go on later in life to create sitcom as a genre. So basically sitcom didn't exist until Gorton and Simpson came up with it. 
I think that's right, but they would disagree. Really? Yeah, they were quite self-effacing, and they would argue that sitcom began with Shakespeare, if not earlier. Oh, come on. The so-called comedies are anything but. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think they were wrong. Yeah. I think they did invent sitcom, and I think we will demonstrate how. Before we get to that, they started working in radio variety series, and it was there that they met Tony Hancock. Yeah. Now, tell me what you know about Tony Hancock. There was very little difference between his on-screen and his on-radio persona and him in real life. Yeah. He's quite an intense man. And we obviously talked about him briefly in our chat shows episode when he appeared on Face to Face. Yeah. He lived at 23 Railway Cuttings, East Cheam. (laughs) Yeah. And just very, very funny. One of the most important figures in British comedy history. Very distinctive look, bloodshot eyes, drooping jowls like a basset hound. You're right, in both his personal life and his comedic persona was the very embodiment of a particular sort of humour. It was pathos, it was tragicomedy. Yes. So together, Tony Hancock as the star and Galton and Simpson as the writers made a radio show called Hancock's Half Hour, which began in November 1954. I thought Hancock's Half Hour was about the affairs of the former health secretary. (laughs) So this is something different. This is something different. And Hancock's Half Hour was phenomenally successful. And some people would say that it was the very first sitcom. Well, yes. I can see why. Because this was the first time that there was a comedy that didn't rely on catchphrases or songs or sketches, but just tried to present, you know, a slice of life from some characters in a particular situation. Exactly. They put Hancock and his other characters into a situation and they derived comedy out of it. Surely that's the very definition of a sitcom. For me, it's not quite what we know as a sitcom. It is the immediate precursor to sitcom. It's the messenger RNA that synthesised the proteins that became sitcom. Oh, so it's like a vaccine. (laughs) Yeah. But when it began on the radio, it was something a bit stranger than what we would think of as sitcom. Okay. So Hancock plays a character called Hancock. Yes who has a radio show in which he plays a character called Hancock. Right, there's three Hancocks. (laughs) Yes, and when we listen to Hancock's Half Hour, we're not hearing his radio show, we're hearing a slice of his life, and he will go on from that to make his radio show, but we never hear his radio show. Right. Even though we're listening to his radio show. Hang on. (laughs) There's Hancock, the real-life person, playing Hancock, an actor, who plays a character called Hancock in a radio show. That's right, yes. So when we're listening to the fictional Hancock's Half Hour, we're supposedly listening to a slice of Hancock's real life with his friends. Mm. Then it's even stranger than that because, like, Kenneth Williams is in it every week, usually popping up saying, oh, don't be like that. But every week, even though he's the same and he's just playing Kenneth Williams, he's playing a different character. Right. His character is always called Kenneth Williams. Uh, No, he's not always called Kenneth Williams, but he's always doing that Kenneth Williams voice and that Kenneth Williams personality, but he's a different character. Right. So in some respects, even though it comes before sitcoms, it's got a lot in common with the postmodern comedies from the 80s and 90s, like It's Gary Shandling's Show or Sean's Show. Oh, two amazing programmes. Yeah, very meta programmes that took the established form of sitcom and subverted it with self-awareness and surrealism. Yes, and if you asked me would I call It's Gary Shandling's Show or Sean's Show a sitcom, I'd probably say no, they're not quite sitcoms. I suppose I see why you're saying that about Hancock. Yeah, they're they're post-sitcoms, which this is pre-sitcom. And it's interesting to me that the pre-sitcom has a lot in common with the post-sitcom. Yes. To me, it's a bit like how fish evolved into mammals, which then took the form of whales, which looked a bit like fish, right? (laughs) The bits side the side look similar to each other, but there's this huge thing in the middle. Are you being surreal like Gary Shandling or pretentious like Tony Hancock? (laughs) Well, yeah, Hancock's character in Hancock's Half Hour is a pretentious would-be intellectual. Yes. He's pompous, he's petty, he's argumentative. Yes. He feels trapped by his life, which he sees as squalid. Remind you of anyone? Um, no. From 1956 to 1961, Hancock's Half Hour became a TV show. BBC Television presents Tony Hancock in... Hancock's Half Hour. And in the first episodes of the TV show, you can see that Galton and Simpson are still learning to adapt from radio to TV because it's a new medium. Mm. And to modern eyes and ears, those early episodes probably rely a bit too much on verbal exchanges and don't have enough visual going on. Right, right. And they made certain changes between the radio show and the TV show. For instance, they dropped Hattie Jakes, who had been a mainstay of the radio programme. Yeah. And Kenneth Williams only appeared in the first two series of the TV show. Right. 
but there was an expanded role for Sid James. <laughs> Sid James became Hancock's foil. He plays his disreputable housemate. Yeah. And together they were Anthony Aloysius Hancock and Sidney Balmoral James. Yes. And here we see the seeds of what will become the classic British sitcom template. Anthony has ideas above his station. He has elaborate schemes to improve his lot in life. And Sydney's there on the side making cynical comments. And usually he's at least partly responsible for Anthony's failure. Yeah. Hancock is trapped by circumstances outside of his control, like class and his financial situation. Yeah. But he's also trapped by Sydney. And crucially, he's trapped by his own flaws. Yes. Again, these are the building blocks of classic sitcom. Yes. In one episode, Anthony and Sydney serve on a jury together, and Hancock gets to utter the brilliant line, Does Magna Carta mean nothing to you? Did she die in vain? (laughs) (laughs) At first, Hancock's half hour went out live on TV, which is amazing, isn't it? Unbelievable. Can you imagine if we did this podcast live, the disaster (laughs) it would be? In one episode, a collapsible wall collapsed long before it should have done, and the cast had to (laughs) improvise ways to stay in character while keeping it propped up for 10 minutes. Just over here, holding the wall. <laughs> yeah. And so after that, they started pre-recording the episodes. Very sensible. But it's still not quite, not quite the standard classic sitcom template, in part because it committed what would now be the cardinal sin of a sitcom. It broke away from its own standard format. Okay. In 1960, Tony Hancock decided to sack Sid James from the show. Yes. And that should be the end of it. Once you start messing with the format to that extent, usually the thing falls apart. Like the wall. (laughs) Yeah. But strangely, when they made that final series after Sid James had gone and the double act had ended, and they'd renamed it to simply Hancock, some of the very best-remembered episodes came from that final series. Yes. There's the radio ham in which Hancock hears a distress signal from a yachtsman whose boat is sinking. Yep. And perhaps most famously and celebratedly of all, there's the blood donor. I've just taken a sample to test. A sample? How much do you want then? Well, a pint, of course. A pint? Have you gone raving mad? (laughs) You must be joking. A pint is a perfectly normal quantity to take. You don't seriously expect me to believe that. I mean, I came in here in all good faith to help me country. I don't mind giving a reasonable amount, but a pint? That's very nearly an armful. (laughs) I mean, that really is one of the most classic lines of British comedy ever, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, he had to read those lines from autocue because he'd just been involved in a car crash and he hadn't had time to learn them. Oh, wow. What's really amazing is that they reached the perfect embodiment of Hancock in that episode, The Blood Donor, Mm. by which time there had already been 150 episodes of the show across radio and TV. That's a single season in America, right? Well, but let's put that in context with really long-running British sitcoms, right? There are 64 episodes of Only Fools and Horses. Yeah. There are 80 episodes of Dad's Army. Yeah. And those are shows that are considered to have gone on almost forever, right? And Mm. most people would agree that they declined a little bit over time. Mm. Whereas Hancock reached its peak after this incredibly long run. Just got better and better. Yeah. Ultimately, there would be 170 episodes of it, although 46 of those are missing because of the bloody BBC tape wiping. Of course. So yeah, Hancock's Half Hour, a really important bit of sitcom prehistory. And again, to put it in the context of what it was, after going to see The Caretaker by Pinter, Hancock famously said to Galton and Simpson, I don't get it, you've been writing this sort of stuff for years. (laughs) And I think there's a lot of truth in that. But then in October 1961, Hancock ended his professional relationship with the writers. Right, all good things must come to an end. Yeah, and then that takes us to the first show that I really want to talk about. Oh, is this your first pitch? No, because I'm not doing pitches. But what I'm going to talk about is Steptoe and Son. Right. Galton and Simpson wrote a series of comedy playhouse between 1961 and 1962. This was after Hancock had ended his relationship with them, and the BBC said, write ten one-off half-hour plays for us. Yeah, exactly. But one of those plays was called The Offer. Right. And it was about two rag and bone men, a father and a son, and they lived together in a squalid house in West London. Yeah. So Wilfred Bramble played Albert Steptoe, a disgusting, dirty old man. You dirty old man. Yes, and what you've done there is an impression of Harry H. Corbett. Um, Not to be confused with Harry Corbett, who was the uh, inventor of Sooty. Yes. And the H is there simply to differentiate the two of them. So Harry H. Corbett would say the H stood for anything. 
He played Albert Steptoe's son, Harold. Harold! Harold! He was frustrated and he really strived to climb the social ladder. Yes. Albert, dirty, disgusting, but also selfish and possessive and Mm. always trying to keep Harold down so that he has to stay with him. So, for example, he would scupper all of Harold's romantic relationships. Yeah. Whereas Harold sees himself as belonging to something better, more aspirational than the rag and bone yard. Mm. That play, The Offer, was extremely well received. And Tom Sloan, who was the BBC head of Light Entertainment, begged Galton and Simpson to write more of them. But they were really reluctant to do so because they thought they'd perfected it. They said, we've written a little piece of pinter here and we can't repeat it. Right. But eventually they were persuaded and so emerged Steptoe and Son in 1962. And we were given a classic sitcom. Yep, which regularly got audiences in excess of 20 million. I mean, that's half the population of the UK. It's incredible. Yeah. In October 1964, the then leader of the opposition, Harold Wilson, tried to lobby the BBC to postpone an episode because it was due to be on air the same evening as the general election. (laughs) I think the BBC politely told him to get stuffed, but it does show what a big deal it was that he thought people are not going to go out and vote. They're going to stay in. Stay in and watch Depto, yeah. What can we say about the show? It's claustrophobic. Mm. It's tragicomic. It occurs mostly in a single location. And mostly in the same room in that single location. Yeah, exactly. It's always about this same theme. No matter how hard Harold tries to escape from this grim lifestyle, his old man always manages to drag him back down. Yeah, absolutely. And that, to me, is exactly the dynamic that came to define British sitcom at its purest. Two people. Two people, one of them aspirational, one of them dragging him down. Single location, resets to the status quo at the end of every episode. Yeah. There are these internal rules and logic that always apply. Harold always wanting to break away, but Albert always preventing it. Albert almost always comes out on top. Yeah. He's very wily, and he manages to outsmart his son at every turn. Mm. Harold will take things very seriously, including games of snooker, badminton, and Scrabble. B-U-M bum. <laughs> Triple letter score, double word score, that's, uh, that's 16 and 14, 30. What filthy mind you have got? What's wrong with that? It's vulgar, that's what's wrong with it. Honestly, this is supposed to be an erudite game calculated to increase one's word power. I mean, just like that ball. It's disgusting. There's not one word you put down that can be used in decent company. There's not one word of more than four letters. There's nothing more than a display of calculated filth. Yeah, but they still count, don't they? No, I don't. Yes, they do. If they're in the dictionary, they count, and bums in the dictionary. Your go. Albus always beats Harold, partly because he's actually very smart Mm. and skilled, and partly because he's willing to cheat and he's willing to undermine Harold's confidence. Yeah, he has no scruples. Absolutely. And there's a lot of hatred between the two of them. Mm. But there is love there as well, and you can feel that too. And sometimes they're nice to each other. Harold is gullible and he overreaches, and that makes him very vulnerable to contracts. Right. Albert can't be conned because he is a con man, right? He's shrewd. Mm. And so there's one episode where Harold is cheated in a game of cards by his mates and Albert goes and wins his money back for him. That's nice. (laughs) Yeah. Although I suppose Albert knows that eventually Harold's just going to spend his money on him. Yeah, probably right, yeah. So Steptoe and Son ran on TV in 1962, 1963 and 1964. Right. And then it took a break from TV for a few years, although during that time they did remake some of the episodes for radio. Okay. Then Steptoe and Son came back to TV in colour in 1969 as the return of Steptoe and Son, and they made two feature film versions in 1971. Mm. But many people think, and this is sort of similar to what we were saying about Hancock's Half Hour, that it improved over time, and a common opinion is that the 1972 series was the very best. Right. I remember that being repeated on the BBC in 1988 when I was about 10, and that was my first exposure to Steptoe. Yeah, that's when I first saw it too. And the episode that I remember fondly is Divided We Stand, where they split their home in two. One of them lives on one side of the house and the other one lives on the other, but the dividing line goes right down the middle of the house, so one of them doesn't have access to the bathroom. (laughs) And also, crucially, the line goes right down the middle of the TV. Yes. We agreed that Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays should be my night. Today is Wednesday. I want BBC too. I don't. I mean, we had an agreement. We shook hands. 
I've got the law of contract on my side. I have the knobs on my side. <laughs> it's a classic. And talking of classic, we have to talk about that fantastic theme tune. Oh, absolutely. It's called Old Ned. It was composed by Ron Grainer, and he won an Ivan Novello Award for that composition. And quite right, too. It's one of the classic theme tunes, isn't it? Yep. And, of course, we have to talk about the two stars. I mean, they are great comic actors. Yes. They were nothing like their on-screen characters. Wilfred Bramble, who played Old Man Albert, who's, you know, dirty, disgusting old man. Yeah. Bramble actually loved opera. He liked to collect antique silver trinkets. He liked to socialise with aristocrats. Mm -hmm. And he liked to take long holidays in Hong Kong. Okay. Partly because he was gay, and being gay was illegal in the UK in the 1960s. Yeah. So he could find places in Hong Kong where he could be openly gay. Yeah. But he was also a big drinker. When he went on Desert Island Discs, his luxury items were whiskey and lager. Right. I mean, to be fair, if you're stranded on a desert island, you need something to get through it. Yeah, I mean, why not? Ari H. Corbett, very different character. He was a committed socialist. Yeah. He was a more of the modernist school of acting. He was a bit earnest, and he would like to experiment with different artistic interpretations of a scene. So Bramble was very much like, let's just do it and feel it. Mm. Corbett was like, what's my motivation? Let me try it this way. Let me try it that way. So yeah. they, they had different approaches. Yeah. Although there have always been rumours that they hated each other, actually, for most of their working relationship, they got along very well. Oh, a bit like us. <laughs> but by the 1970s, Harry H. Corbett was beginning to feel a bit frustrated at being typecast. Mm. Here, there's something a bit in common with his character. Like, he feels like he's trapped in this status quo. His ambitions are being thwarted. Yes. Bramble, although he's a very cultured and sophisticated man, was becoming a bit cantankerous and difficult to work with because of his drinking. He was having a shot of gin before breakfast. Oh, dear. And he would take his character's dentures and soak them in scotch before he put them in his mouth. Just so he could feel the taste all the way through performing. Yeah. They eventually really fell out during a tour of Australia and New Zealand in 1977. They weren't good neighbours. No, but but to the extent that there is a happy ending, they did get back together in the 1980s, in character, for a Kenko advert. <laughs> Fantastic. Written by Galton and Simpson, which, you know, it's not the happiest of happy endings, but I'll take it. Yeah, and it's better than Goldblend, I suppose. <laughs> Steptoe and Son, phenomenally successful actually across the world. Mm. It was the basis for the American series Sanford and Son, which was very long-running and had multiple spin-offs itself. In Sanford and Son, the characters are reimagined as African-American junk dealers in Los Angeles. That was a huge hit and mm. has been hailed as the precursor to many other African-American sitcoms, including The Cosby Show and The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yeah, absolutely. Incidentally, Bramble and Corbett, one of the early fallings out that they had was which of them should have top billing on the show. Yeah. And so the way that was resolved by the BBC was that they would alternate it every week. Bramble would have top billing one week and for the next episode, Corbett would have top billing. Oh, that's an interesting way of doing it, yeah. Yeah, now Galton and Simpson, they never had that because they didn't have egos. Right. But their writing credits when they started out were Alan Simpson and Ray Galton because A comes before R. Mm. And then later, the BBC switched it, actually without Galton and Simpson asking for it, to Galton and Simpson, so the other way around. And this time, again, it's alphabetical because G comes before S, which you'd have to say is fair enough. So there's multiple ways you could do this. There's ways of doing it, yeah, that's A way. So can we talk about why this show is called Luke and John Cracking TV every single episode? Because <laughs> as far as I can see, J comes before L in the alphabet. Yeah, but which sounds better, Luke and John or John and Luke? John and Luke. Anyway, that's Steptoe and Son. So that was your first pitch? No, it wasn't a pitch. What's your second pitch? There won't be one. In 1964, BBC Two was brand new. Yes. And its controller was called Michael Peacock. Yeah. And he was hanging around in the office of producer Bill Cotton. Oh, yes. Who would later go on to be BBC Head of Light Entertainment and who frankly seems to feature in this podcast more often than you or I do. Yeah, he's on every show, isn't he? In that office, Peacock saw what we would now call a pilot for the Likely Lads. Oh, yeah. And he thought, oh, that would be ideal for my fledgling channel. And so he stole it. It was written by Dick Clement, yeah. who was a radio producer, and his writing partner, Ian Lafrene, who sold insurance in Newcastle. Right. Dick Clement had been on a BBC director's course, and he'd been given a bit of money to go and shoot something. 
he and Lafrené decided to expand on a 10-minute sketch that they'd written, and The Likely Lads was born. Wow, so this show is just made out of a BBC training course. Exactly, and it was put on BBC Two. That wouldn't happen today. No, but hardly anybody had BBC Two in those days, so they were hungry for content, and it sort of didn't matter if it was going to succeed or not. Right. So it was a story of two working-class lads in Newcastle, both in their early 20s, Bob and Terry, played by Rodney Bewes and James Bolam. Yeah. Very different personalities from each other. Bob is small C conservative and a little bit gullible. Yes. Terry is chauvinistic. He's a jacked lad. Mm. They work in a factory. They drink brown ale in the pub. They talk about football and women. Yeah. But Bob wants to move into the middle class. He sees that as improving himself. But his efforts are continually thwarted by Terry, who is cynical and selfish. So there's a bit of the Steptoe and Son dynamic. It's not that they've taken Harold and Albert and simply made them younger and moved them to Newcastle, but it's clear that there's a lot of that in there, that they've inherited that Steptoe DNA. It's the same sort of idea, but obviously a very different relationship. There's a warmer relationship between them than there is between Steptoe and Son, but it's still fundamentally at heart the same idea that's just been taken on a step. Taken on a step, (laughs) Toe. So yeah, very few people had BBC Two at the time, so the writers could develop the show and could develop their style without a great deal of pressure on them. Mm. But then BBC One made a show, Christmas Night with the Stars. They asked Clements and Lafrené to create a 20-minute Likely Lads special. Yeah. So this is BBC One, Christmas, millions and millions of viewers, and the viewers loved this Likely Lads section. Loads of people wanted to see more of it. BBC One decided to repeat the shows that had already been shown on BBC Two. So this is BBC One nicking it from BBC Two. Yeah, exactly. In the words of Frank Muir, who was then assistant head of BBC Light Entertainment, the last episode reached the highest figure we've ever had apart from Steptoe and Son. Wow. At the end of the third and final series in 1966, we see Bob, he's depressed and he's bored, and he decides that he wants to join the army. Mm. But he gets rejected because of his flat feet. Right. But Terry, who's going to miss Bob, decides at the last minute to enlist to keep him company. And he gets accepted and then is shipped away in the army for several years while Bob stays at home. Oh dear. That's how it ends. Mm. But it doesn't quite end there because there was a sequel. Okay. And like The Marriage of Figaro, Paddington 2, or Chubby Checkers Let's Twist Again, this is a sequel that's better than the original. (laughs) Right. Whatever happens to The Likely Lads? Ah, so that's your second pitch. I got it wrong earlier. I'm not doing the sodding format. Shut up. It's 1973, and it's in colour, unlike its predecessor. And of course, it's now on BBC One. Mm. Bob now has a white-collar executive job. He's bought a new-build house on a suburban estate, and he's engaged to a librarian called Thelma, who happens to be his boss's daughter. Yeah. Now, of course, this being the early 1970s, there's no suggestion that Bob and Thelma will cohabit before their nuptials. Of course. The 70s were so moralistic. (laughs) Yeah, they've bought this house together, and they're going to move into it together once they're married. But they go to sports clubs, and they attend dinner parties. Right. Bob and Terry have completely lost touch with each other because Terry is in the army. And this is much to Thelma's relief because she thinks Terry was a bad influence on her fiancé. But in the first episode of Whatever Happened to the Likely Lads, Bob goes to London, catches a strip show because it's the 70s. Moralistic. (laughs) And on the train back, in the dark of a power cut, he gets talking to his unseen fellow passenger. Just come out of the army. Oh, I <laughs> Enjoy it. Got a lot out of it. Got a lot out of it. Uh, I nearly went in once. Actually, there's a funny story attached to it. See, I had this mate. Well, my best mate, you know. A few years back, I decided it might be a good idea to join the services, you know, get away for a bit. But when I went away, this mate of mine, he couldn't take it. He went to pieces. He couldn't function without me. So he signs on just to be with me. Only you'll never guess. <laughs> he gets in. And I get discharged, flat feet. I'm free again and he's in for three years. I can still see the look on his face. I still laugh when I think about it. You bastard. What are the chances of that happening? (laughs) Bob and Terry get their friendship back on track, but they realise that nothing will be the same. Yeah. 
Terry is sometimes hopeful that they can get back to being the fancy-free young men that they once were, and they do both get nostalgic for their youth, and they feel depressed as they see the old landmarks being demolished. And that's reflected in the theme tune, right? Yes, it's one of the all-time greats. It was written by Mike Hogg from Manfred Mann, along with Ian Lafrenet. Bob is trying to move with the times. Mm. Terry has failed to adjust to the changes that have occurred, actually largely because society moved on during his five years in the army. And he just missed it. Yeah, he's missed the changes, and he still holds on to attitudes from the mid-1960s that are now completely outdated. Yeah. But nonetheless, Bob is easily led. That's his personality, and Terry is headstrong, and so Terry will often get Bob into scrapes. Yeah. Maybe the best-remembered episode of all time is No Hiding Place. This is where they're spending the whole day trying to avoid hearing the score of an England football match so they can watch the highlights that night. And also they've made a bet about being able to avoid it all day. And it's got a great punchline at the end. Match postponed, waterlogged pitch. England flooded out. That first series of Whatever Happened to the Likely Lads is 13 episodes long and it culminates in Bob's wedding to Thelma and the end of an era. Hmm. The second series is also 13 episodes long and is still good, but in my opinion, it doesn't quite reach the heights of the first. The wedding is such a natural place to leave it. Perhaps it should have just been a one-series classic. Maybe so. They also made a feature film and compared to other 70s films based on sitcoms, it's not bad, mm. but it's not as good as the TV series. Mm. And that first series of Whatever Happened to the Likely Lads is, in my opinion, absolute sitcom perfection. It's funny, it's sad, it's warm, but it's got plenty of edge. Yeah, it's just what you want. Exactly. Now, just like with the stars of Steptoe and Son, there have long been rumours that James Bolam and Rodney Buse didn't get along. According to Buse, they were actually firm friends, funnily enough, until 1977, which is also the year that Bramble and Corbett fell out. Mm, okay. Buse said that they were being interviewed together, and during that interview, Buse recounted a pretty innocuous anecdote about how Bolam's partner told Bolam that she was pregnant. Right. But Buse later realised that Bolam was an intensely private man, and he might not have appreciated that indiscretion. So Buse phoned Bolam to explain and apologise. Yeah. But Bolam listened silently and then slammed the phone down and never spoke to him again. Oh. I'm not sure how much we can believe Rodney Buse. Yeah. He once claimed that he persuaded Jimi Hendrix to play electric guitar on the theme to Whatever Happened to the Likely Lads. Okay. <laughs> which can't be true, because Hendrix was dead when that song was recorded. <laughs> okay. Maybe you could do it from the the grave. There's a germ of truth in it because Rodney Buse had a friend who was in a band and Rodney Buse was in a recording studio when Jimi Hendrix played on that friend's track but right. it was not the theme tune to whatever happened to the Likely Lads. Yeah, making the story up later. He's a funny character, Rodney Buse. He became very show busy. He lived in a glamorous London apartment with two Bentleys and a Porsche. I mean, how much was the BBC paying its sitcom stars? Too much. Some people thought he was great fun, but others thought he was very egocentric and boring. Kenneth Williams said of Rodney Buse, he doesn't do it maliciously because he's not ill-natured. He's unthinking, and that's the problem. Right. Bridget Forsyth, who played Thelma, said that she often wanted to strangle him. Wow. And when James Boland was first asked about going back to do whatever happened to the Likely Lads, he shook his head and said, not with Rodney Buse, no. <laughs> That's a bit of a problem, isn't it? If the, yeah. if the double act won't go back together. Yeah, but obviously they did persuade them to get back together. Bolam has insisted that there was never a rift between them, but I'm not sure we can trust him either. He's just a very, very private man, and I think he would rather deflect any such talk and just yeah. focus on his work. I once saw him in a restaurant in Chiswick and the person I was with tried to get James Bolam's autograph and James Bolam was not happy about it. Really? You know, he just wants to be left alone. Which is fair enough. Yeah, I agree. So does this mean that the answer to the question, whatever happened to the Lightly Lads, is that they hated each other? Well, in years after, when James Bolam was walking down the street, if somebody shouted to him, where's Bob? He would mutter, he's dead. <laughs> okay. 
That's why they didn't bring it back. And there was talk of bringing it back in the 90s with them as much older men. Mm. Rodney Buse was very, very keen on that. I mean, partly because he never really did very much afterwards, whereas James Bolam continued to work pretty much throughout and has been getting work as an actor even in his dotage. He did new tricks, didn't he? Yep. As for Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenny, the likely lads gave them a formula and they have run with it. They've used it and refined it in many different settings. Mm. There was the 80s comedy drama, Arvida Saint Pet, for example, which we must talk about sometime. Definitely. But that's about seven working class characters. And I would argue that each of those seven is at their heart either a Bob or a Terry. Yeah. Clement and Lafrenny also co-wrote the movie The Commitments, and this time there are 12 working-class characters, and most of them either have a fair chunk of Bob about them or a fair chunk of Terry about them. So you think their style is basically, I'm going to make each person a percentage of Bob or a percentage of Terry? I think so, and, and when it comes down to it, either they're a percentage of Albert or a percentage of Harold. Yes. Clement and Lafrenet have enjoyed a lot of success in America as well, mainly uncredited, but they get good gigs rewriting the dialogue for buddy action movies like The Rock or Bad Boys. Oh, right. And again, here, I think they're going, okay, which one's Bob and which one's Terry? Yeah. So I think we can trace a path from Steptoe's junkyard through the boozers of Newcastle and into Hollywood. Yeah, okay. It's impressive, isn't it? Yeah. And of course, one show that I haven't talked about yet, where you might argue that Clement and Lafrenet absolutely perfected the Steptoe formula, where they got two people trapped together, one of them aspirational and the other one cynical, was in Porridge. Yes, absolutely. And that's the show I'm already minded to commission. So I'll take it from here. Listen, it's one thing if you want to interrupt my audio essay, but would you please cut out the commissioner crap? Hmm. Porridge is the ultimate example of two people being trapped together because the main protagonists share a prison cell. Yes. Porridge grew out of Seven of One, a series of seven one-off comedies in 1973 featuring Ronnie Barker. So a bit like Comedy Playhouse, which was the genesis of Steptoe, but here they each have the same star. Exactly. And one of the episodes was Open All Hours, written by Roy Clark, which of course would become a series. Yes, in which Ronnie Barker plays Arkwright, who's tied to his shop and who keeps his nephew Granville, played by David Jason, from spreading his wings and developing his own social life. You're suggesting there's a parallel here? I'm saying that the the formula might just be in that one too. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Two of the episodes of Seven of One were written by Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet. Okay. And one of them was called Prisoner and Escort, in which Barker's character, career criminal Fletcher, is sent down for burglary and the episode sees him transported from London to Slade Prison in Cumberland, accompanied by guards Mackay and Barraclough. Yes. Barker actually wanted the other Clement and Lafrenet episode of Seven of One to be turned into a series, I'll Fly You for a Quid, and that was about a Welsh gambling family. Right. But the BBC felt that while it was good as a short story, there was much more mileage in exploring life behind bars. Barker would later say that the BBC was right to go with Porridge. But that first play that Porridge was based on really isn't Porridge because it's him in a van, it's not him in the prison. Exactly, it ends with him arriving at the prison. Right. And so the series built on that, and the first episode you see him booked into prison. Yeah. And at the start of every episode of Porridge, we hear the judge pass sentence. Norman Stanley Fletcher. Norman Stanley Fletcher, you have pleaded guilty to the charges brought by this court, and it is now my duty to pass sentence. You are an habitual criminal who accepts arrest as an occupational hazard and presumably accepts imprisonment in the same casual manner. We therefore feel constrained to commit you to the maximum term allowed for these offences. You will go to prison for five years. And do you know who played the judge in that clip? That's Ronnie Barker again, isn't it? It is. He's sending himself down. He's such a versatile actor. When you think about him in Open All Hours or him in The Two Ronnies versus him as Fletch in Porridge, it's hard to even reconcile those as being the same human being, I think. Arkwright and Fletcher could exist in the same room and you'd believe they were two different people. Absolutely. Barker is obviously a comedy legend and I think he plays Fletcher to absolute perfection. I agree. Now, a lot of the comedy comes from the interaction between Fletch and his cellmate, Godber, played by Richard Beckinsale. Yes, so a much younger man. Yeah, and it's his first time inside. And they didn't actually become cellmates until episode three, A Night In, 
This is one of the best examples in sitcom ever of the interplay of two contrasting people and I think takes the point that you've been making that was started with Steptoe to its absolute pinnacle. It is the perfect example of what you're driving at. Right. We see Godber only a few days into his sentence move into Fletcher's cell. He's finding prison life tough. He's really missing the outside world. And Fletch, as the old hand, gives Godber a lot of advice, especially when it comes to dealing with his thoughts about his fiancée, Denise. <laughs> Denise is a thing of the past, isn't she? She's just a photograph under your pillow, just a, just a letter in your top pocket, right? Just a, a warm tingle in your loins. For me what? <laughs> in your loins. What are loins? <laughs> Look, you know, when you're lying there in the middle of the night, <laughs> thinking of Denise, right? And you're thinking of all the lovely times you've had together, yeah? Don't you get a little warm tingle? Yeah. Well, where you get it, that's your loins. I thought they were... There are lots of names for them. <laughs> Now, I've gone for a funny clip, but the whole situation just builds over the half hour. Godber can't sleep and the two have quite a deep conversation and it's full of pathos that is relatable to everyone even though most of us have never been to prison. Yeah. Interestingly the next couple of episodes move away from the prison setting. For example a work party in the country where Fletch manages to briefly escape on the pretense of getting first aid for a fellow inmate who got stung by a bee. Right. And Clement and Lafrené realise that they were trying too hard to introduce plot and Porridge worked at its best when it explored the characters' emotions and exploits within the confines of the prison. Exactly right. You have to stick them in that unchanging situation. It's all about the situation. Yeah. Now, although Wiley, Fletch is a father figure to many of the prisoners, for example, reading letters for those who are unable to. Yeah. And if he has a catchphrase, it's a sceptical, oh yes, he wouldn't believe anything if he hadn't seen it for himself. Yeah. Being a pre-Watershed show, it couldn't feature real swearing, so they substituted with naff off, introducing the phrase into the vernacular. Yeah, so naff off didn't exist before porridge. Not really. Do you know what it's meant to stand for? No. Well, apparently it's gay slang for someone who's straight, and it means not available for, well, let's say fun. Oh, uh, okay. So yeah, I don't think many people, when they started saying naff off, realised the uh, etymology of the phrase. No. The show makes a thing of the little wins that make prison life vaguely bearable. Yeah. Especially when Fletch gets one over on hard-nosed guard Mackay. Yeah. Mackay, for example, once told Gobber he wasn't victimising him. He just treats all prisoners with equal contempt. <laughs> and the actor who played Mackay, also called Mackay, but Fulton Mackay is his full name, was apparently very pernickety in rehearsals and intentionally or not would help the other actors get into the role of wanting to get one over on him. Right, because they didn't like the way the actor was behaving. Yes, I mean they didn't hate him as a person but certainly yeah. the way that he was behaving in rehearsals really wound them up. There's an interesting contrast between the main guards, Mackay and Barraclough. Mackay's tough but Barraclough is naive. Yeah, well he's nice isn't he Barraclough? Yeah, he is nice. And while the prisoners often take advantage of Barraclough, they realise he's reasonable and he shouldn't get into trouble with his hierarchy. In one episode, they stage a riot and only stop when Barraclough, who wouldn't be able to stop a real riot, asks them very nicely to stop. And they do to make him look good to the governor. Oh, well, whatever works. Exactly. The prison itself. Yeah. Most scenes were filmed in the normal sitcom style of individual sets in a TV studio. But the show sometimes needed to show a wider shot of the prison. Yes. And the BBC wanted to film these shots in a real prison, but the Home Office wouldn't let them. Right. So stuck with a problem, the set designer Tim Gleeson realised that they could repurpose the water tank at Ealing Film Studios. Oh, no way. The ground floor was effectively in the tank, and they, right. they lined the wall with cell door, fake cell doors shoved some walkways over the top of the tank and then built the next level sort of at ground level, as it were. Very smart. Very smart. Now, in the last episode, Godbert is released and he thanks Fletch for looking after him. I'd have never have made the distance without you, Fletch. Look, don't make me out to be no hero, son. No, I wasn't. Father figure, maybe. Oh, I ain't been no great shakes as a dad. I've been no great shakes at anything, really. Well, you have to me, Fletch. And that just sums up the relationship between them. Yeah. Fletch would get released in the follow-up series Going Straight. Yes. At the end of the series, Godber marries Fletch's daughter Ingrid, who he'd started writing to from prison after his fiancée Denise had sent him a Dear John letter. Right. Altogether, there were 21 episodes of Porridge and six of Going Straight, 
There was also a feature film, but as with most sitcom film adaptations, that's best forgotten. Right, yeah. Porridge was revived in 2016 as part of a season of programmes to celebrate 60 years since the first BBC TV comedy, Hancock's Half Hour. Okay, but that Porridge revival really wasn't very good, was it? No, I mean, it was initially a one-off and then they commissioned a series of six. Yeah. The series featured Fletcher's grandson Nigel doing time for cybercrimes. Yes. But I think the original 21 episodes of Porridge are an absolute classic example of sitcom and go right to the heart of the point you're trying to make with your epic audio essay. Yeah, well, thank you very much. I mean, I I agree. I think Porridge, as you say, having a prison as the setting really does mean that the characters are trapped together, can't escape from each other, and the interplay between the two of them forms the whole world for both of them. I think you're going to have a tough job beating that, but what's your next pitch? I shall pretend you didn't say that. Let's return to my audio essay and let's go back to the comedy playhouse which birthed Steptoe and Son for a female version of The Likely Lads. Okay. This is The Liver Birds, created by Carla Lane and Myra Taylor. Okay, and where's The Liver Birds set? It's set in Liverpool, surprisingly enough. But why is it Liver Bird and Liverpool? I've absolutely no idea. It's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> So, The Liver Birds is set in Liverpool. It began in 1969 on BBC One, spinning out from a comedy playhouse like Steptoe and Son did. Yeah. The theme song was by Liverpool band The Scaffold. And The Scaffold, of course, consisted of John Gorman, who we talked about in the context of Tiswas. Ah, oh, the first show I ever pitched, John. Yeah, nice reminiscing. What happened to you? Whatever happened to me? Also in the scaffold were the poet Roger McGough and Paul McCartney's brother Mike. Yeah. Now, the pilot of the Liver Birds and the first series starred the brilliant Pauline Collins along with Polly James, but the chemistry was never really there, and so that first series was cut short from a planned six episodes to just three. Ooh, ouch. Pauline Collins was dropped or left, mm. and for series two, Neris Hughes arrived to act alongside Polly James. Mm. Hughes having previously appeared in an episode of The Likely Lads. Yes. And so respectively, Hughes and James played the characters Sandra and Beryl. And guess what? What? Sandra has grand snobbish aspirations, whilst Beryl is regarded as, in quotes, so basic. So it's the same formula again then? Exactly. Now, this era with Neris Hughes and Polly James is widely considered the classic era of the show. Yes. But what are you hoping for? What does every girl hope for, Beryl? A mink coat, nice big diamond from Richie Burton, Everton to win the cup. No, I mean above all. Oh, well, if I had to choose Everton to win the cup. <laughs> Marriage, Beryl. Marriage. Neris Hughes' Scouse accent was absolutely terrible. All right, calm down. Whereas yours is brilliant, of course. Thank you. Neris Hughes, as you can tell from her name, is Welsh, and she never nailed that Scouse accent to my satisfaction. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I wonder why they cast her. I mean, obviously she's a good actor, but you think they just cast a real Scouser? There's a song by Half Man, Half Biscuit called I Hate Neris Hughes from the Heart. (laughs) (laughs) So what would happen in The Liver Birds? Well, it's very much about two relatively likeable young women having adventures. So you might see them enjoying poetry at a nearby pub. Mm. There's an episode where you have Roger McGough reading a lengthy poem. You would not see that in a sitcom nowadays. It's not just, here's the poet reading one line and we establish it. He's actually reading the whole poem in the show. Yeah, exactly. You might see them at a flatwarming party that goes wrong, or losing their jobs and signing on, or hiring horses, or learning to drive, or almost becoming Miss Hot Pants 1972. <laughs> okay. Which you can relate to, can't you? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But after the first two series, the co-creator, Myra Taylor, left. And the third series was written by Carla Lane plus other writers. Mm. But from the fourth series onwards, Carla Lane was the sole writer. Yeah. And she started to find her voice as a writer by bringing more tragedy and introspection to the show. You might see a well-loved character at the top of a tower block threatening to jump because his pet rabbits have been stolen. It's me rabbit. (laughs) Yes. That would lead on to Carla Lane's best work, which was the tragic, quiet, subversive story of a frustrated housewife and mother. Bread? (laughs) No, butterflies. Oh, yes. 
Butterflies is a good show, isn't it? Butterflies is the best thing Carla Lane ever did. For series five, Polly James left and was replaced by Elizabeth Estenston. Mm. So now both Liver Birds have been replaced. So they're like the sugar babes of the day. <laughs> yes. And fascinating fact, 43% of women in their late 30s today have been in the sugar babes. <laughs> Estenson played the brash Carol Boswell. And of course, Carla Lane would later reuse the Boswell name in the execrable bread, which I'm annoyed that you raised because we won't talk about it today or ever, except to say fuck bread. Look, it's a terrible show. Let me agree with you there. It's the most horrible set of Scouse stereotypes ever. It just goes way beyond. Yeah, it's appalling. The Liver Birds ran until 1979, so nine series in all. I mean, I'd never have guessed it ran for that long. That's the whole of the 70s. Yep. It was later revived in 1996 for a 10th series. And this saw the return of the classic two Liver Birds, Neris Hughes and Polly James, as yes. Sandra and Beryl. But they brought back other characters, mm. like Carol's mother and Carol's brother. Fine. And they said they were Beryl's mother and Beryl's brother instead. Oh, hang on. That's not fine. It's not fine at all. Like, you, you can't just deny continuity like that and sort of hope that people will have forgotten. That is treating the audience with contempt. Yeah, I think it's unforgivable. Yes. Compared to the other shows that we've talked about today, The Live of Birds is not as great. And it makes me feel bad to say that. Not because it's set in Liverpool. I don't care about that. But because this episode of our podcast is very male-dominated. Mm. And I do want to say that women have written and starred in some of the greatest comedies of all time. Off the top of my head, This Country, Fleabag, Green Wing, Catastrophe, Derry Girls, Roseanne, etc., etc., etc. It's just that not so many of them fit the theme of my audio essay, at least not until we get into the 1990s. Yeah, I mean, I agree. But does that mean I've got to keep sitting through this audio essay? Oh, this audio essay is going to go on and on and on. Right. And actually, at this point, I'm going to tell you about some of the shows that I could have included in my audio essay. You mean that you could have pitched? But that I didn't include in my audio essay because they didn't quite fit. Right, so they didn't quite fit in this three-hour epic. Faulty Towers. Mm. Basil is an heir to Hancock. Mm. And he's got a bit of Harold Steptoe about him. Yeah. But fundamentally, I think Faulty Towers is a farce and so belongs to a different comic tradition. Yeah, I think that's fair. Blackadder, we've got the aspirational Edmund, who's always stuck in a status quo that he's desperate to escape. He always thinks he's deserving of a higher status, and he's dragged down by his disgusting and dirty sidekick Baldrick, or by his own faults. Well, that sounds familiar. Yeah, but that dynamic only really takes hold in the second series. The first series has a very different DNA. Overall, I think Blackadder's probably a show that belongs in a different episode of our podcast. Yeah, that makes sense. As does Only Fools and Horses, which is an interesting case because you've got Dell, who's aspirational, this time next year will be millionaires. And he certainly has some pretensions, although he gets his French phrases very wrong. <laughs> Monge too, <Monge> Rodney. <laughs> but also, Dell is the one who is comfortable in his surroundings, while Rodney is the one who's embarrassed and would like to escape. So the step-tone DNA is in there, but it's been mixed around a little bit. Yeah, they've taken that DNA and swapped it a bit and broken it apart and given it to different characters in a different way. Yeah, so I think it is an heir to Steptoe and Son, but it will fit better in a different part of our schedule. I mean, in a different audio essay. Okay. So what is the next show you're going to discuss? <laughs> Thank you. So we're going to go forward in time a little bit from The Liver Birds to 1988, but also we're going to go forward in time three million years into the future. Okay. Because we're going to talk about Red Dwarf. <laughs> Two of the main writers on Spitting Image, Rob Grant and Doug Naylor, created Red Dwarf for BBC Two in 1988. And this is a sitcom about a mining spaceship from the future that has a radiation leak which kills everyone on board. Almost everyone. Almost everyone, yes. Lowest ranking technician Dave Lister, who's in suspended animation at the time as punishment for smuggling a cat aboard the ship has survived yeah but following the accident the ship's computer holly keeps lister in stasis until the radiation levels return to normal a process which takes three million years right and lister therefore emerges as the last human being in the universe where is everybody on they're dead dave who is everybody dave what captain hollister everybody's dead dave what todd hunter Everybody's dead, Dave. What's Selby? 
They're all dead. Everybody's dead, Dave. Peterson isn't, is he? Everybody is dead, Dave. Not Chen. Gordon Bennett, yes, Chen, everybody. Everybody's dead, Dave. Rimmer. He's dead, Dave. Everybody is dead. Everybody is dead, Dave. Wait. Are you trying to tell me everybody's dead? Lister's former bunkmate and enemy, Arnold Judas Rimmer, is resurrected by Holly as a hologram to keep Lister sane. Right. Because Holly figures that being with someone that he hates is the best way to keep his mental faculties going. Fair enough, yeah. And there's a creature known as Cat also on board, which is a humanoid descendant of Lister's pet. Yeah. Clive Anderson described Red Dwarf as Doctor Who with jokes, but it was originally pitched more accurately, in my opinion, as Steptoe and Son in space. How come? Well, because the central relationship is between Lister, played by Craig Charles, who's a lazy, disgusting slob. Yeah. And Rimmer, played by Chris Barry, who's fussy, neurotic, and has ambitions that far surpass his abilities. And hopefully by this point in my audio essay, that's starting to ring some bells. Yes, there's a common theme here, isn't there? As Craig Charles says, Red Dwarf is a classic sitcom because it's people in a confined space who don't get on with each other. Space is the situation, not the comedy. Yeah. A key difference between Red Dwarf and Steptoe and Son is that our sympathies lie with the slob. So Lister is a good man at heart, even if he's a self-proclaimed bum. Yeah. Whereas Rimmer is irritating, selfish, insecure, bureaucratic and cowardly. But they both want to escape this situation. Lister would like to find a way to be with the woman he had a crush on, Christine Kuchansky, even though she died three million years ago. Yes. This being sci-fi, that's not necessarily an unassailable (laughs) obstacle, and he does find various ways to see her. Yeah. Rimmer wants to pass his officer exams, which he continually fails, and he blames his failure on the circumstances of his life, but that's undermined when he meets an alternate universe version of himself, Ace Rimmer, who had a tougher life, but has been a phenomenal success. Yeah. For the first two series, the other characters are the senile computer Holly, played by Norman Lovett, and the vain Cat, played by Danny John Jules. Yes. And for the third series, the character of Crichton was introduced. He was a servile robot, played by Robert Llewellyn, and Norman Lovett was replaced as Holly by Hattie Hayridge. And from that third series onwards, the sets got darker, they were inspired by Alien, and the plots became more science fiction-y. It became a bit less stepped out, and actually the ratings improved. It was regularly getting 5 million on BBC Two, which is a good haul. So this is moving away from our template, right? And you're saying that it was more popular when it wasn't following the template. Yeah, time had moved on, and the science fiction stuff was popular. I think most fans felt it found its stride around Series 3, and it remained in its pomp until the end of Series 6. And it had moved on a bit, but it was still at its heart, Lister and Rimmer, and that Steptoe and Sun dynamic between the two of them driving the comedy. Okay. Some of the best episodes in those series were Back to Reality, where the crew have a collective hallucination, which makes them think that their whole Red Dwarf experience has been a virtual reality computer game. And then they have to go back to their, in their minds, real lives, which include Kat's true identity as Uber Dork Dwayne Dibley. Right. There was the episode Backwards, in which the crew return to Earth, but find that time is running in the wrong direction, so everything happens in reverse, which is particularly disconcerting when one of them needs to defecate. Yes. And there's Polymorph, in which a mutant creature that feeds on negative emotions steals Lister's fear, Crichton's guilt, the cat's vanity, and Rimmer's anger, which leaves them all with very different personalities. Now, that's quite an interesting premise, and just rip up the DNA and, and swap it around. Yeah, exactly. The sci-fi allows you to mess with the status quo and then return it to the status quo at the end of every episode, and I think that's what was really good about Red Dwarf. If they pulled off something like Carol's mother in the live bed, it would be less <laughs> yes. of an issue. Yes, you can just bring her in from an alternative reality. Yes. After Series 6, Rob Grant left the show, leaving Doug Naylor as the sole writer, and he seemed to take the jokes with him. Mm. It just wasn't funny after that. Chris Barry left the show during Series 7, and he was replaced by the aforementioned Christine Kachansky, which is such a massive misstep. Yeah. It really messes with the chemistry. Yeah, messes with the premise. Yeah, imagine losing Albert Steptoe and replacing him with a love interest for Harold. Yeah. It's just not, not going to be work. the same comedy show anymore. Yeah. Chris Barry came back for Series 8, but rather than say, okay, let's go back to the formula, they decided to mess with it even more. They resurrected the whole crew of Red Dwarf. So you've got the Steptoes back together, but they're no longer trapped in each other's company. Exactly. 
these sitcoms work when you follow the formula. When yeah. you move away from the formula, they're not funny anymore. Yeah. That was it for 10 years. But then Dave, the channel, not Dave Lister, the character, brought the show back. They did a comeback special called Back to Earth, which was universally panned. But since then, they've made three more series and another special, which have been somewhat better received. Yeah. One thing Red Dwarf had in common with Porridge is that it introduced a new swear word into common usage. Yeah, smeghead. All right, I was only saying. So that's Red Dwarf. And that means we've had four shows from you. Steptoe and Son, Whatever Happens to the Lightly Lads, The Lither Birds, and Red Dwarf. And we've also had my show, Porridge. Well, yes, but I haven't finished my audio essay yet because we haven't even gone into the 90s. There are loads more shows that I still need to cover. Uh, Yeah, but we're running out of time. We can't keep going for hours. Well, why not? We can go as long as we want. Don't you dare say it's the format. It's not that. It's just that we're, we're running out of space on the tape. On the tape? Yeah, the tape that we record the podcast on. The podcast tape. Kind of feels like you tricked me here. Tricked you? How? Well, I was trying to do something different. I was trying to break out of the format. And now it feels like we've just done the format. I've pitched four shows. You've pitched one. All that's missing is the sodding quiz and decision. I tell you what, we could do some more of these types of sitcoms in our next podcast. Keep it going into the 90s. We've never done a two-parter before. That breaks the format. Yes, it does. It breaks the format. Yes, finally, we're not just stuck in that same old status quo routine. Okay, great. So let's do the quiz and decision. You know your place. Don't rise above yourself. Don't get out of your whole complacent little turd. You are morally, spiritually and physically a festering, fly-blown heap of accumulated filth. Watch it, mate, or I'll have you with a punch up the bracket. So question one. What was the name of the Steptoe's horse? Hercules. Correct. The classic episode of Whatever Happened to the Lightly Lads, No Hiding Place, was remade in 2002, starring which duo? Anton Deck. Correct. Porridge and the Liverbirds shared a legendary BBC producer-director. He'd also worked on such comedies as Yes Minister, Last of the Summer Wine and Open All Hours. Who is it? Sidney Lossaby. Correct. And in Red Dwarf, which 80s pop star played Christine Kachansky? Claire Grogan. Yeah, so you got four out of four. Yeah, whatever. So I think you've proven that you could be a producer of a comedy. Well, yes, I could, but that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to issue an audio essay. So shall we find out if I'm going to commission one of your shows? Bloody hell. So the first show you brought was Steptoe and Son. Yeah. I think you made a very strong case that that is the foundation on which the whole sitcom genre is built. Well, I hope I did, because that was the point of my audio essay. We've sat through a long audio essay, (laughs) and it wasn't pointless. Steptoe is definitely in with a chance of being commissioned. You've done very, very well there. Okay. Next up, you talked about whatever happened to the Likely Lads. And, you know, it's a really good show. It's very funny. It's got a very strong central relationship. Yeah. It builds on that Steptoe formula. It's more than just Steptoe of the North. It does something different with the formula. Yeah. But I don't think it surpasses Steptoe. So I'm not going to commission it. Okay. Then you talked about the Liver Birds. Yes. That clip you had, was that really mm-hmm. the best clip you could find of the Liver Birds? It was the best I could find. It's not that funny a show. And the 90s revival that reset the characters' relationships. I mean, that is terrible. Yeah. I understand why you'd want to include it in an audio essay, but why you would bring it to a commissioner, I do not know. Well, I wasn't trying to pitch it. No, I think you've ruled it out yourself. Yeah. And then your final show is Red Dwarf. Yes. And that takes the Steptoe formula mixes it with a bit of sci-fi and I'm afraid that's the problem for me you just don't like sci-fi in general do you I'm not a sci-fi fan however clever Red Dwarf is and clearly it had its fans and it definitely had some funny moments you're not going to get a sci-fi show past me okay and actually Red Dwarf also committed that sin of breaking the Steptoe format both when Rimmer left and when they tried to revive the entire crew. Yes, true. You've been trying to break out of our podcast format, but you have to accept that all these Steptoe-influenced sitcoms need to respect their format all the time. I I absolutely agree. I think it's integral to these sons of Steptoe that they have that type format, that it's about that central relationship, that that central relationship is ultimately unchanging and that the status quo resets every time. Completely agree. 
And so that brings us to the two shows that are really good at resetting every episode and sticking to the format, Steptoe and Son versus Porridge. Yes. Steptoe invented the format. Arguably, Porridge was the peak of the format. I'm a big fan of Porridge. I'm a big fan of Clement and Lafrenet as a writing duo. But you've got them here up against Galton and Simpson as the originators, not just of this particular style of sitcom, but of sitcom in general. Clearly my point here is that Steptoe is the progenitor of so many sitcoms, and we'll talk about that more in the next episode. It is actually a very difficult choice. I think I'm going to give it to Steptoe and Son. Yes! Get in! I've got the commission! Oh, it sounds like someone does care about this podcast format after all. Oh, no, 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 I don't. Now, come on, John, admit it. You're stuck in this status quo with me, and nothing is ever going to change that. (sighs) Let's do the outro. That was Steptoe and Sons Part 1 on Cracking TV. It was produced and presented by me, Luke Sluman, and him, John Furlong. And I don't mind getting back into the format at this point to say our rather marvellous theme tune was written and performed by Simon McInerney. Luke and John Cracking TV is an iHawk Factual Entertainment production. It's time to change the channel to Luke and John Cracking TV. Luke and John Cracking TV. Oh, you dirty old man.